A United Airlines Boeing 727 is doing a series of stopovers from New York to San Francisco when disaster strikes in Salt Lake City. What caused this bird to crash on the runway and melt? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And we just had a moment. Don't worry about it. It's fine. You can listen to it in the pooper room. Yeah. Yeah. Any um, housekeeping? Housekeeping items? Not really. Check out, if you want to check out the newsletter, it comes out the first of the month every month, or when you submit that you want to get it. We send it out. If you want to look or have something to look forward to in the next month, like you really want to know what's coming up. Sneak peeks of stuff are in there. We talk about the previous month, so if you're not caught up, we talk about what we covered. Also, since these are all recommendations, if you've given us a recommendation, it'll also remind you if yours is coming up in the next month. Yes. Because so many of them are so far in advance, we know you probably don't even remember when your recommendation will be. Yes, but you are mentioned in the newsletter if you get us a rec- give us a recommendation. Yeah. We say thank you, because thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of which, thank you, Mike, for requesting this episode today. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> See, I remembered. We yeah. Look I did. This, time. this is going to be quite the short episode, but that's okay. This kind of speaks to the way things are right now. Like, we don't have much housekeeping. Not much has changed in the last week, but that's also because we're getting ready to move. Yes. We're moving. We're closing in two days from recording. So it was kind of nice to have a very short report to look at. Since this we're week. packing. So no offense, you will get a longer episode later. So yeah. what are we covering today, Nick? So we are covering United Airlines Flight 227. This accident occurred on November 11th of 1965, so 111165. This was a Boeing 727-100. A whisper jet. A whisper jet. Which they is were, not actually a whisper they're jet. They're <laughs> far from a whisper jet, but that's okay. Uh, with the tail number November 703, Oscar Uniform. And this was a very, very new airplane. At the time, 727s were very new. The 737 and the 747 did not exist yet. So this was quite a while ago in the age of jet aviation. And quite early. And the 727, as a matter of fact, this one in specific was delivered in April of the same year. We're talking November is the accident. So very new airplane. This was to be a flight from... Are you ready for this? <laughs> From LaGuardia to San Francisco, with stopovers in Cleveland, Chicago Midway, Denver, and Salt Lake City. As is with reports that usually come out of the 60s. Yeah, a lot of these planes <laughs> would do... Yeah, and even earlier than that. Yeah, this is kind of a common thing with airlines back then, and even in recent history, but a lot of airlines these days are really point-to-point with their flights. They don't do these... Uh, stopovers. Long stopover yeah. trips, multi-stopover trips anymore. Southwest is really the only airline that kind of carries on that legacy in the U.S. The captain for the flight was Gail C. Kimmeyer, I think is how you pronounce his last name. He was 47 years old. He had 17,743 hours total, of which 334 hours were on the 727. That speaks to how new the airplane is, especially in their fleet. That's how few hours he had, and he was the most experienced on the type in the airplane. Oh, dang. 334 hours. Well, it, this here's, should be fun. Yes, but here's the thing. It actually wasn't that dissimilar to the 
707 or the 720, which is the other thing that he was rated on, as well as the other two crew members, I think, also had time in both. So it, the cockpit wasn't that dissimilar to where this wasn't a big learning curve, per se. However, this is a tri-jet, not a quad-jet. So actually, it, it has the it's a, a tail mounted engine. Yes, for the time, actually, this was kind of rare. It had fewer engines than most airplanes had for its time. Was the L ten eleven a thing yet? No. Okay, so this was before the L ten eleven. Yeah, roughly. Yes, it was a little ways before the L ten eleven. This was probably during development stages of all the big wide bodies that were to come, and all the other big trijets. But this was really kind of that premier introduction to more efficient flight with fewer <laughs> engines like one of those where it's like look you can have an engine on the tail yeah. <laughs> cool and now yeah. we don't even use <laughs> well and it was the only it's one of the only airplanes well, one of the only airliners that ever existed with all three engines at the tail apart from eventually the russian jets the tu-134 and 154 which is why it was called the whisper jet because yes. theoretically in the cabin you wouldn't hear as much of the engine right turns out Friggin' Spoiler loud. alert. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> no, it was pretty loud. And just the same, eventually came the 737, which eventually was a twin-engine airplane. And it was smaller than this, but it had basically the same cockpit as well. So Boeing was very much in their, definitely, development stage of airplanes during the 60s. The first officer was Philip E. Spicer. He was 39 years old. He had 6,074 hours, of which 84 hours were on the 727. Yeah. He was the least experienced on the 727 in the cockpit. The flight engineer was Ronald R. Christensen. He was 28 years old. He had 1,027 hours, of which 166 were on the 727. So he had the least number of hours total. I did find out that five, about 500 of his hours were actually uh, pilot in command. Oh, look at that. That was probably just in small airplanes and whatnot, but good for him. So the leg we'll be talking about today is from Denver, hello, Hello. to Salt Lake City. We've done that flight quite a few times. Well, I've done well, that you flight have. quite a few times. Christy's done it a couple twice. Of times. I've done it once. Yes. But we'll go back. It's short. I it en- is. I enjoy Salt Lake City day trips. Yeah, actually, like, it's the perfect easy. day trip. It is the perfect day trip for us because it's close. And I have a friend at the Tracy Aviary. He's a spectacled owl. Yes. He's cute. An owl. For this portion, there were to be 85 passengers and six crew. The flight from LaGuardia through all the stopovers to Denver was routine. There was then a crew change to the accident crew at Denver, so they swapped out the crew at Denver. Kind of makes sense because United has always had Denver as a hub, so that's normal here. The captain was to be the pilot monitoring, and the first officer was to be the pilot flying for this leg. The flight left Denver at 4.54 p.m. on an IFR, or Instrument Flight Rules, flight plan for Salt Lake City. The assigned altitude for the flight was flight level 310 or 31,000 feet with an estimated flight time of 57 minutes. Short flights. As the flight approached the Salt Lake City area, the flight crew requested to the Salt Lake City Air Route Traffic Control Center not to be vectored over Provo. They must have been expecting weather or something. They didn't really develop on this much. Not in my part, either. Yeah. Just that the captain didn't want to go he over just, Provo. Yeah, he just specified he did not want to fly over Provo. I don't know if it was maybe just a long approach or something. They didn't want to add time. There was weather. Who knows? The new approach was to have the flight arrive on runway 34 left from the Lehigh Intersection, or L-E-H-I. 
which was 13 miles northeast of Provo and 23 miles southeast of Salt Lake City, which was the initial fix for the final approach to runway 34 left anyways. At 5.35 p.m. and 45 seconds, the air traffic controller cleared the flight to descend to 16,000 feet at their discretion, and the captain acknowledged this, then requested, quote, let me know when we're 60 miles east of Lehigh, end quote. So he just wanted to know roughly when they were at that point from Lehigh that that was his reference point to begin his descent. 5.38 p.m. and 5 seconds, the air traffic controller did just that and notified the flight that they were 60 miles east of Lehigh. The flight responded, quote, okay, we'll start her down, end quote. Very nonchalant to me. The flight entered a 6,000-foot thick layer of clouds on its descent with engine anti-ice on. The flight proceeded normally following radar vectors from the air traffic controller. As the flight passed five nautical miles southeast of the Lehigh intersection, they were handed off to Salt Lake City Approach Control. The flight then received several more clearance altitudes during the continuous descent for their descent period. Speed brakes and idle thrust were being used to slow the plane down for a period of time. As the flight reached about 11,000 feet, they gained visual contact with the airport. They retracted the speed brakes and turned off the anti-ice system. Not in the clouds anymore, not really much need, because not much call for icing. At 5.47 p.m., the approach controller advised United 7227, which I thought was weird because that's not their flight number. He said United 7227. That's what's written in the report. they added an extra 7. Yes, they did. It's 227. 227. So anyways, he said United 7227, 5 miles south of Riverton Fan Market, coming on localizer course, cleared for ILS runway 34 left approach. Basically all that to say where their position is and cleared them for the 34 left instrument landing system approach. 5.48 p.m. and 10 seconds. The flight responded, quote, Okay, we're slowed to 250, and we're at 10, or 10,000 feet. We have the runway in sight now. We'll cancel and stand by with you for traffic. So, in other words, they're canceling the IFR portion of their flight, and they're just going to fly it visual now to the runway since they can see it. Which you can do if you can see the runway. Yes. Mind you, now it's dark. Uh, it's not great. I mean, it's totally legal. Oh, but. as long as they have approach lights and they yeah, can see the it's runway, all, it's fine. All legal. VFR conditions and the dark. Totally legal. The flight was then passed off to the tower controller at 5.49 p.m. and 40 seconds. The flight was cleared to land by the air traffic controller. The flight reduced speed down to 123 knots, its planned approach speed, with 40 degrees of flaps selected. The flight was descending at over 2,000 feet per minute. Ugh. Suddenly, the plane thrust increased rapidly. Moments later, the airplane struck the ground. 5.52 p.m. and 10 seconds, the tower called the emergency services, reporting, quote, United's on fire, just landed, end quote. Whoa. Wait. Whoa. <laughs> yes, a lot just happened there. <laughs> that happened really fast. It sounded like they were going to do a go-around to me when you said that they increased engine power, but did they just not realize how fast? fast they were descending we'll talk about that later okay (laughs) a lot just happened there so we're gonna go through wreckage here first and kind of the um how the accident sequence happened and then i will read the interviews and then we will jump into your portion the airplane impacted the ground initially 335 feet short of the runway threshold it contacted the threshold lights at which point the main 
landing gear collapsed, both of them, and separated from the, the fuselage, so now it's just riding on the belly. Getting on the belly. Yep. yep. The lower portion of the fuselage contacted the runway as it continued to slide. It slid 2,838 feet. It veered to the right and came to rest 150 feet east of the runway. So it slid down the runway and off to the right. The number one engine separated and traveled 140 feet further beyond the fuselage. So the left engine literally separated and went forward of the airplane. That's not good. Nope. In the initial impact, a fuel line was separated along the lower fuselage below seat 18 Echo on the right side of the airplane, where a fire erupted immediately and it quickly spread throughout the airplane. Yeah. As fire does. Yes. One of the things that it said is it made a survivable accident fatal. Yes. Yikes. In reality, the airplane actually... Everybody was probably alive when it came to stop. Can't really say the same at the end of all this. All of the exits were... And the cockpit windows were opened for the evacuation. They were all used. However, in all, 13 passengers were not injured at all. All six crew and 29 of the passengers were injured... Didn't say at what varying degrees, but injured. And then 43 passengers perished in the accident, including two that passed away two days after the accident in the hospital. Most of those were from... Smoke inhalation? Smoke inhalation, severe burns. burns. Severe, severe burns. The airplane actually melted entirely on top in the fuselage. So the whole thing burned. Freaking crazy. If you look at the the crash photo I'll put on the website, it looks like it melted from the top down. Like, it's crazy. Yeah, it melted the whole top of the fuselage inward. Which, usually when planes catch on fire, even on the ground, that doesn't happen. Yeah, it's not normal. (laughs) And we'll talk about why that's not normal later. Okay, good. Because I also remember, so when I looked up the the picture for the newsletter, Mm -hmm. I was like, how? (laughs) Yes. Unless, like, it started on the top of the plane and it ate through the metal, which clearly that's not what happened. Not it, not not what happened, no. But the fire was inside the cabin, which did cause it to do this. Yeah. So. so. Okay, we'll jump over to the report here, and I'm going to read these interviews, because obviously all six crew members survived the accident, so they actually had people to interview. Which is good, because this was in the days before CVRs. Yes. So. They interviewed all three of the flight crew members, and we'll go through this. So, here was the captain's statement. At approximately 6,500 feet MSL, so above mean sea level, he stopped the first officer from adding power. Specifically, he brushed his hand away from the throttles. We'll get to that in a minute. He did. He estimated that 15-20 seconds later, at approximately 5,500 feet MSL, the first officer moved the thrust levers forward. When the engines did not respond... He moved the thrust levers to the takeoff power position and assumed control of the aircraft. Whoa, 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 wait, wait a second. Wait, who's flying? The first officer is pilot flying. So he is the one who's in control of the levers. Yes, he's supposed to be. So then why is the captain worried about what's happening with the first officer? He's still pilot in command. And That's he's and fine. He's, and he's captain, captain. Well, yeah, okay, this, is, this before is before time of, you know, that, as we know, long, CRM now. Long before CRM. But it's just one of those things where... If you're not flying, you have other stuff you should be doing. Yep. I don't know. It's weird to me that he was just like, no. (laughs) Yeah. You're not the one flying. We'll talk about that more in a bit. Okay, cool. The first officer's statement. Approximately one and a half to two minutes prior to impact, 
He attempted to apply power, but the captain advised him to wait. About 30 seconds later, he moved the thrust levers halfway. When he realized that nothing was happening, he reached to apply full power, but the captain was already on the controls. Oh my god. See, this is what I mean. Now, okay, I realize cockpit dynamics at this time, different. Mm -hmm. Okay, It's just different. But if you are not the pilot flying, you should not be handling the flight lever, the engine levers, the the power to the engines. Right. Because you are not the one physically flying the aircraft. Right. So You're correct. It's a little weird to me that he was like, oh, I'll just take over. At that point, I mean, in this time, it was probably pretty common for the captain. Perhaps a little more common, but... To take over flight, but even then... Like, there's no conversation about it. You're just doing it. Right. Like, there's can a lot you of, not? a lot of weird things going on here, which, again, we'll get to this in a minute. So I'm going to leave his statement there. The second officer, the flight engineer. On short final, the first officer started to apply power, but the captain brushed his hand away and said, quote, not yet, end quote. Finally, the captain applied half-throttle movement. That's all he said. That's all he observed. So... He said he did not observe the engine instruments, but he heard the engines respond normally. And actually, none of them noted looking at the engine instruments at any point in time. Well. <laughs> to see if power was actually, Normal. if they were actually getting thrust. So why were they trying to apply thrust? Were they too slow? Well, let's dive into that. Okay. Uh, well, technically, their standard operating procedure was that if they were descending quickly they could go to take off power and so, land safely yes it would reduce their rate of descent because you increase lift over the wings so it's uh, weird and i don't entirely understand why that was procedure then yes it's this, not now this is not a normal procedure per se although you do generally land with some amount of thrust well i mean well, yes. you do your final approach of with course, some amount of thrust you but you land wouldn't with do zero. full thrust though that's too fast. No, but we'll note why they were using full thrust in a minute. Because okay. they were descending at 2,000 feet per minute for a reason. Great. This investigation was performed by the Civil Aeronautics Board, or, or the, the CAB. CAB. Yay! Who were the predecessors of today's NTSB. Yeah, we had to get this report from the... Uh, Department DO of Transportation. The DOT website where you have to have a login. You can also get it. You just have to log in. Yeah, it's free and whatever, but... So, we, we don't have a link to the report, technically. There's a link to the DOT website. Yep. They were able to recover the aircraft's one black box, the flight Ooh. data recorder. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they found it in excellent condition and analyzed the last 15 minutes of the flight. It read that at 10,200 feet, the crew began reducing their airspeed from 370 knots, which was about four and a half minutes before impact, and reduced down to 123 knots at 7,800 feet, less than two minutes from impact. So that's quite the slowdown. I just wanted to mention that, because that's within 3,000 feet, basically, they lost over 200 knots of speed. Yeah, about 250 lot. knots. And yeah. here's the thing. 370 knots at how high? 10,000 what? 200 feet. 10,200 feet. Air, your... Uh, Speed limits now, globally, are two hundred no more than 250 knots at 10,000 feet. So that just shows you how times have changed because, and we've talked about that in a previous episode, when roughly that changed because, yes, this was clearly a very problem. fast. 
From here, their rate of descent became very steep. I'm assuming because they lost so much speed. It exceeded 2,300 feet per minute in the last minute, which is three times the normal recommended descent rate. Yeah, that's not great. Yep. The impact had a recorded vertical acceleration of 14.7 Gs. Ooh. Ouch. Yep. Totally survivable, apparently, though. Apparently. Which then disrupted the black box for six seconds, understandably, since it was analog. Yeah. Like, I get it. All, yeah, this is 1960s. Like, 1965. The fact that it didn't completely stop the FDR is like, okay, good for you. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. And it didn't stop recording the vertical acceleration, the Gs. It only stopped recording the other three parameters, which I think were altitude, airspeed, heading? Probably. Question mark? I don't remember. Investigators were unable to find anything in the wreckage that would help them understand why the plane was descending so much. There was no evidence of mechanical malfunction, and there were no reports of icing or other such factors that could affect aircraft performance. So investigators used what I assume was radar recordings to analyze the descent profile. Around six miles from the runway, the flight passed the outer marker at 2,000 feet higher than the normal glide slope, yep. and was in the middle of their deceleration that I mentioned earlier, and were at 200 knots. 40 degrees of flaps were selected, and landing gear was extended, and the reference landing speed was achieved. One minute before impact, they were descending at 2,300 feet per minute, three times the recommended rate, but was also still high by 1,300 feet. Right. Yikes. That's pretty big reason why they were descending so quickly, but that's all the wrong reason. Yeah. Okay, they were still high by 1,300 feet. In his interview, this is when the captain said that he told the first officer to wait to add power, but realized he was in trouble when he was at a thousand feet, around one and a quarter mile from the runway, 30 seconds before impact. He then testified that he moved throttles to take off power, but nothing happened that he could remember. Just not quite true, actually. Psychologically speaking, it's really hard to rely solely on witness statements, particularly for traumatic circumstances. Yes. Because the brain doesn't record everything super accurately. And no. this is true. Yeah, if you've ever been in an accident before, like a really bad one, you have a hard time remembering what happens because your brain... Well, in any kind of trauma. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Your brain blocks it out because it's trying to protect you. <laughs> it's like, nope, we don't remember that. Sorry. So this was one motivator for implementing CVR, since witness statements generally suck. Yes. But investigators here didn't have such a luxury as a CVR, so they had to figure out whose statements matched the circumstances. Investigators asked for the time estimate between the throttle advancement and impact, and they got some varied answers. The captain said it was 30 seconds before impact, but also said that the engines didn't respond, though he didn't remember the instrument readings. The first officer said it was only 5 to 10 seconds before impact, no more than 15 seconds, though he did not look at the instruments and didn't hear or feel an engine response. The second officer, or flight engineer, said it was 7 to 8 seconds before impact, and he did hear the engines respond normally. And then the survivors. Many in the aft cabin, including two flight attendants, said that the engine spooled up 5 seconds before impact. So, investigators were more inclined to believe the uh, 5 to 10 seconds rather than the 30 seconds reported by the captain. Especially when coupled with the debris found in the engines that indicated that the engines were indeed spooled up at impact. So, what should the crew have done? 
They were trained that the suggested descent rate was 6 to 800 feet per minute, matching closely with the ILS glide slope, and the steepest they could safely land at was just under 2,000 feet per minute and flaring at 50 feet, all the while using takeoff power, actually. However, this configuration was not advised and, quote, should not be allowed to develop, end quote. It shouldn't be a habit, basically. Yeah, for sure. With the descent they had, investigators said that the crew should have performed a 360-degree turn to lose altitude, or basically do a loop around the airport before actually landing. But when asked, the captain said he didn't do so because he believed it wasn't needed, and that if power had responded properly, he would have landed normally. See, here's where I have a problem, and again... I realize this is before what we know is CRM, right? Mm-hmm. But the captain wasn't the pilot flying. The first officer was. Right. So really, it should have been up to the first officer to figure out what to do. Now, if the captain had noticed they were going descending too fast, he should have been like, uh, hey, we I don't work too fast. Like, we need to figure this out, right? But there was no conversation. He just right. took over the levers and didn't... Well, and that we know of. Right. Well, right, because we don't have a seat. We don't have a cockpit voice recorder. But right. from what it sounds like is the captain didn't talk to the first officer or the flight engineer if he had issues with the descent. Yeah. When asked the same thing, the first officer said that he didn't do the 360 because it was the captain's prerogative. See, this is where... The CRM is a big problem. This kind of CRM is a big problem. Mind you, this was still in the time of aviation when the captain's word was law. The captain was the captain. Yes. Right. He had more than twice the hours of the first officer. So what the heck was up with this captain, you might ask? What would have led him to make such poor decisions on approach? Investigators decided to dig a little into his training record. Oh, no. At one point, he had wanted to transfer to the DC-8, but couldn't complete the training due to, quote, unsatisfactory performance in the areas of command, judgment, standard operating procedure, landing technique, smoothness, and coordination. How is he even a captain? Arguably the most important things that come with being a captain. Yeah. Like, what's the point of me being a captain? Every single one of them. But somehow, he was graded on the Boeing 720 two years later as above average in command ability and judgment, two qualities that normally don't vary so drastically in such a short period of time. And it wasn't the last time that would happen either. When he tested below average on anything on a checkride, he tested above average on the second attempt or on the next flight. Two FAA inspectors said that the captain had the training and ability to fly well, but would, quote, deviate from accepted procedures and tolerances enough to make the maneuver unsatisfactory. Repetition of the maneuver following a discussion of the acceptable tolerances would result in a satisfactory performance. So here's where, and those of you who aren't musicians, I'm sorry, because this is how my brain's thinking, right? If you practice something incorrectly, even though it's kind of correct, but if you do it incorrectly a lot... Consistently. Consistently, you will automatically get that incorrect when you try to play it again. Mm -hmm. But then if you're told what is correct, you can still play it correctly. And you most likely, when you, so if you're in a lesson with someone, your teacher goes, you've played that incorrectly, you need to play it again. Most likely, you'll play it again correctly. But because you've practiced it so many times incorrectly, if you don't practice it enough correctly to counterbalance it, you will automatically go back to not being able to play it correctly. So what I get from this record is that he does the bare minimum to pass a test, but then reverts to bad behavior. Right. Because that's what he's used to. Yep. 
Investigators determined that, quote, the training records of this captain indicated a pattern of below-average judgment, as well as a tendency to deviate from standard operating procedures and practices. Indeed, it is significant that in this case, the history not only reflects an apparent indifference toward adhering to acceptable procedures and tolerances in general, but specifically during the landing or ILS approach phases of flight, end quote. That's not good, especially since approach is, like, a very important part of flight. Yeah, so a very key thing, and eventually we'll cover an accident where this was a very big telling factor, but arguably that was the biggest telling factor here, was a very unstable approach. Being too high isn't necessarily uncommon, but the captain's inability to put the airplane on a stabilized approach... It's indicative of a bigger problem. At any point in time, yes. So normally you can do a continuous approach. There's also the step approach method, which they weren't really doing either. They were just dropping as fast as possible. Willy-nilly, (laughs) yeah. Dropping as fast as possible. There was... So there's a lot of telling signs there, and he really wasn't in control of this airplane. He was ignoring a lot of the telltale signs of being... In a not good situation. Yeah. So he just. Well, and the first officer and flight engineer didn't say anything either. I mean, you. I I realize. So we keep saying this, and I will keep saying this because I understand that in this cockpit, Captain Word is law, right? So Mm -hmm. he's the one who makes the decisions. I get that, but you have two other people in the cockpit. One of them's actually flying the airplane. Right. (laughs) So. Neither of them noticed anything weird, and so they just kind of went with the captain, which, again, we later, you know, if you need to re-listen to Tenerife (laughs) and why this isn't great, (laughs) um, that changed, right? We have crew resource management, and so the management in the cockpit now is different. It's just shocking to me that neither none, none of the three of them realized how bad this unstabilized approach was, and they just went ahead with it anyway. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, it was a pretty <laughs> ugly situation. And the plane melted. <laughs> but we'll take a break and dive into the findings next and the recommendations. Yep. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. And we're back. So, we're going to move on to findings. There were nine of these, and they're all very short. Five-word sentences. They're all really short. So, normally I'd skip the first one, but I'm not going to. CAB found that the aircraft power plants, important, And all systems were capable of normal operation. So there's nothing wrong with the engines. There was nothing wrong with the engines. They spooled up normally after throttles were advanced. You also have to give them a second. Like, we we talked about this a few times. It's a big burp. You need to give it some time. It is. Well, and there's a big difference between turbine engines and piston engines. The engine in your car will react immediately. With piston engines, they react immediately. Also, these engines are farther back from the cockpit well, than in other planes, so you might not be able to hear the same amount of stuff yes. going on I mean, in the that cockpit. Is, that much is true, but yes, it does. With any turbine engine, it takes a significant more amount of time for it to respond versus a piston engine. They found that the aircraft crossed the outer marker 
over 2,000 feet above the instrument landing system glide slope. That's way too high. Yes. I, <laughs> I Did they have any indication they were on the glide slope other than charts and things? They probably still had some form of approach lighting. Yeah? Some form of... Uh, Would that be it, though? Reference lighting. Yeah. Yeah? That's about it. That's about it. I mean, okay. they, there was some instrumentation in the cockpit that should have told them, too, where they were. I mean, that's how an instrument landing system works. It, it would tell them if they were too high or too low. So, yeah, they were way too high. So what did they do? Well, they found that the rate of descent during the final approach exceeded 2,000 feet per minute, approximately three times the United Airlines' recommended rate of descent for landing approaches. Or any airline, for that matter. That's ridiculous. That on is fi- really bad, yeah. At any point in time to be on final approach, going losing 2,000 feet per minute is absolutely nuts. It's a lot. It is. They found that the captain stopped the first officer's initial attempt to apply power, which, if he had applied power, they probably actually would have had a stabilized approach. But we don't know for sure. They found that the power was applied too late to arrest the rate of descent and make a normal landing. Yep. Yeah, I was... <laughs> yeah. They, that's Five why Five seconds-ish before impact? Yeah, not good. They found that the captain's training records indicate a tendency to deviate from acceptable standards and tolerances. Are you catching on to where they're going with this? The captain. They found that the right main landing gear severed fuel lines and a cabin fire erupted seconds after impact, which we'll talk about the cabin fire part in the recommendations, because that's a whole nother mess that did get fixed, but it was a whole nother mess. They found that all emergency exits were used. I mean, that's good. Yes. There weren't any exits that people didn't know how to get out of. Yes. So that's good. That's more than some accidents can say. And they found that this was a survival accident. Well, because people survived. People survived, so. So people only died because of the fire. Yep. Yep. That is it. As normal, verbatim, probable cause. The board determines the probable cause of this accident was the failure of the captain to take timely action to arrest an excessive descent rate during the the landing approach. That is the entire probable cause. Ta-da! Short and sweet. Super short, and they. this is the only one I think I've ever seen where they blamed one. One person. And Which, one thing, well, period. If you're going to say that he's in charge of the entire cockpit. And, and his word is law. Yeah, and he's in charge of everything that happens, then it's only fair that you blame only him. <laughs> Even and though he's not the one flying the approach, there's other people in the cockpit. If you're going to say that he's in charge of how the, this approach went down, yes. he's the only one who gets the blame. Now, arguably, there's some other things that could have been considered as factors in this accident. Perhaps the NTSB would have had more to say about this in the modern day, but this is pretty true. It was pretty much all on the captain. It was all his decisions that made this happen in reality, but... The fact that they were never on a stabilized approach, that was pretty ugly. None of the crew did anything about it. In modern day, there would obviously be big breakdown in crew resource management that would be noted in there because it wouldn't just be on the captain at that point. And then uh, also when it comes to the fire, there's a big, big, holy crap, that's a terrible idea that happened. Of putting the fuel line above the landing gear? Of putting the fuel line below a seat. Through oh. the out, through next to an outer wall. Yeah, it's not great. So we'll talk about that here in a minute because that comes up in these <laughs> recommendations. 
There are four whole recommendations. Ta-da! <laughs> the first one is the longest one, and it will uh, be important anyways. They recommended that the board is concerned that the procedures for pilot testing prevailing at the time of this accident were such that an individual with the pilot behavioral characteristics of the pilot in this case could qualify and be retained as pilot in command of a Boeing 727 aircraft. The board therefore recommends that both the Federal Aviation Agency and the air carriers re-examine existing procedures to the end that all feasible steps may be taken to make sure that airmen who serve as pilots in command of commercial aircraft, and in particular, high-speed jet aircraft, such as the Boeing 727, possess not only the requisite technical skills, but the necessary qualities of prudence, judgment, and care as well. So, quick note. Yes, that does say Federal Aviation Agency. Yes. That is correct. It is correct. That is what the FAA was before it was the Federal Aviation Administration. So, this was all around a very long way to say that they think there should be more to pilot and commands than just having the technical knowledge. Yeah. They should also have qualities like good uh, skills and not deviating from procedures frequently or having to retake tests over and over again and things like that. Like just good judgment. It's not just that now. Like, it's more than pilot in command now. It's all pilots that are in a cockpit. Because if you have to retake something multiple times, one... So one time, I mean, okay. if you're young, right? Yeah. If you're a first officer and that's happening, fine. And you have to retake it a couple times or even just again to get it correct. I would get that. But a pilot in command or someone who has a lot of hours... To be doing this every single time yeah. is repetitively. That's a red flag <laughs> to be like, mm, maybe you shouldn't be in charge of this cockpit. Yeah. Yeah. Just a thought. Basically. Or go back into training or, you know. Right. The board believes that all operators of the Boeing 727 should review the decisions of United Airlines relative to positioning of stewardess near exits with a view toward adopting their practice. So, fun fact, that's really common now because that's where the seats are designed, but that didn't always used to be the case necessarily. Well, this they is could... the time where airliners were more leisure. It was definitely more of a luxury form of travel. This was yeah. getting out of that period of time, though. We're talking about this becoming a much more mass form of travel than a luxury form of travel. So, But seats weren't put... Uh, like. Uh, flight attendant seats weren't put strategically at exits. Right. And their job wasn't necessarily... It was... To protect people. Yeah, no, they were. And help them get off. It, it was, was much, much more about service. How can I service. help you? Yeah. Or right. can I get you another Well, napkin there was some whatever. aspects to keeping the people safe. It wasn't necessarily much about that. However, they actually took this time in the recommendations to commend United Airlines for the fact that they do position their... Flight attendants flight at attendants exits. At the... Exits. I also thought it was interesting, the period verbiage of stewardesses. Yeah. Yeah. Notice I said flight attendants earlier. Yes. So, but anyways, they did do this as a point of safety and being able to have somebody right there to open the exits, those kinds of things. And they recommended to all other operators of the 727 to do so. So I thought that was interesting. And then it just became a thing. It's very normal. Now. Well, and it changed the whole service of flight attendants in general because... 
their job now is not to give you a Diet Coke. No. They do that because they want the airline itself wants to make your flight more enjoyable. Well, and that's engagement in their job and customer satisfaction. But their primary job is to make sure if there is something that's like if there's an accident or an emergency, you are safe and you know what to do. Exactly. So please listen to flight attendants. They're trying to keep you safe. Yep. And that's most of what their training is. Yes. They hardly get trained for how to serve you. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The board is also concerned about the loss of life in the survivable accident and recommends that the crash fire prevention research programs underway be pressed with a vigor and that each improvement be incorporated at the earliest possible moment. So any way to prevent major fire. So... That's really key because, yes, that is the only reason, the only real reason that anybody perished in this accident. And it could have been survivable. And that's true. But then they get a lot more specific than that. The very last recommendation says additional specific recommendations on the Boeing 727 are set forth in Attachment B. So I went to Attachment B. And it's interesting because what they note very specifically is that the fuel line, let's see here. So, our investigation of the November 11, 1965 accident of United Airlines Boeing 727 November 703 Oscar Uniform at Salt Lake City, Utah, has progressed to the point where we believe specific recommendations are in order in regard to the routing of fuel and electrical lines through the fuselage. We will probably have additional recommendations later concerning other design and operational aspects. However, further investigation and study are required beforehand. So, they actually went into the design of the airplane. Here's specifically what they said. Fuel lines through the fuselage should be routed that they pass through the floor beams near the center line of the aircraft. So this is really important, actually. So then they're not underneath seats. More specifically, actually, it's so that they're not near the outer edges of the airplane. Well, that way... Because those are prone to impact. And those can get oxygen. And they get severed. So if it's running along the outer wall of the fuselage and that part impacts, or for example, the landing gear separates and contacts the fuselage like it did in this case, and then it caused, because it contacted the fuselage on the outside, that just happened to be where the fuel line was. And guess what? It separated. So they talked about putting the fuel lines through the center of the airplane rather than along the outsides. That is huge. Because that is arguably the biggest reason a fire even occurred. The fuel lines and their shrouds should be made of stainless steel and should have a wall thickness of sufficient dimension to withstand rather severe impacts. We suggest that the wall thickness be not less than 0.040 inches. That's oddly specific for one, but what were they made of before? Good question. Uh, The generator leads should be routed so that there is a maximum separation between these leads and the fuel lines, this this being the electrical lines. Each lead should be in a separate plastic conduit with suitable strength and flexibility to withstand bending and reasonably high tensile load. So there's that for an example. I think it says in here specifically what the fuel lines were made of. Stand by. Or at least the casing of them. I just want to find it here because I thought it said it was some kind of aluminum. That would be my guess was aluminum because that's what a lot of stuff was made of. Do you know why? Because it's cheap. It's light. It's light. It's actually more expensive than steel. But it's there was a- actually one point where aluminum was more expensive than gold, and then they figured out that it exists like everywhere. Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then they were like, eh. But aluminum is used on aircraft 
because of how incredibly light it is. Steel is much, much heavier, though it is stronger. Yes. But as we have discussed in the past, what you make up for in strength, you lack in ductility. Right. If you want something to be less ductile, it's going to be stronger. And just for a quick reminder for our listeners, ductile means durable? No, bendable. No. Bendable. Yeah. So it's more likely to be brittle and crack yeah. and break. So the opposite of ductile is brittle. So while it's stronger in force, it is still more likely to crack, per se. Yes. Which is a problem if you've listened to any of the episodes about fatigue. Yes. Um, so there are three general categories of material types. There's polymers, so plastic, metal, and then ceramics. And so you can have metals that err more on the side of ceramic where they are brittle, like glass. Yeah. So. I can confirm that it's aluminum. It's in the paragraph, actually, okay. after those that I read. So, yeah. It is, and, in fact, aluminum that they were made of. And aluminum is a more ductile material, more likely to bend. Yep. There's your material science for the day. So, ultimately, that was the biggest reason this was even a deadly accident, was because of the design of the fuel lines. Which have changed significantly. And yes, they don't run through the outside walls of the airplane anymore. That just, that just is seems not like a good idea. That just seems like a really poor idea, yeah. Yeah. It just does not. It sounds like at some point, if it didn't happen here, it happened somewhere else. Yeah. But, and I don't know exactly what the inside of a wheel well of a 727 looks like, but I could find out. But the inside wheel well of a 737 isn't probably that far off. And there's a reason I bring this up. Because they look a little something like that. Oh, dear oh. Lord. So, while they don't necessarily run through the outside wall of the airplane anymore, there are a lot of very important things that still run through the wheel these areas. Wall. But, be it that they're made of different materials, they are less likely to have major problems. problems. However, they did this on the 737 and arguably on the 727 to make it easy to access because these are like head height on these airplanes. I mean, you can mm, reach in and right. get these. That was kind of the whole point. But also, what a mess. Yeah, that <laughs> looks like a gigantic trying to find the actual thing you need to get to would be yes. so difficult. So if you're, ever, if you're ever curious, look up the wheel well of a 737, and the pictures are just astonishing. You would just wonder how you'd ever be able to find what you're looking for in there. I'll put a picture I mean, of it in the... In the blog post for this episode. Yeah, I mean, it is just amazing. It really is. Uh, shout out to all aircraft mechanics, which are also known as ANPs, which is airframe and power plant. You guys can do that stuff and look at that wheel well and know what everything is, and we don't. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's Nor pretty Nor do incredible. I want to. That seems very... Like a lot of work yeah. that I don't want to do. I mean, you, you look at the outside of the 737 and not bad. It looks pretty simple. A pretty simple airplane. And then you look at the inside of the wheel well and it's just like, oh, oh God. Lord. God, what a mess. It's so, yeah. Yeah. For example, Al is an ANP. Yes. Who has worked on 737? Works on them actively. That's it. That is the whole of this. So they blamed it solely on the captain, and then there was a big fire. And so 727 was ultimately the design of it. Redesigned. Is, yes, it was redesigned, and this was not a problem really any further. And but, it's almost obsolete at this point. Well, yeah, 727s are 
long gone. But no it did one. change. You, you, have to, you have to say, it did change the way that airplanes are designed anyways, because it changed that major thing. And then it did change the the um, the way that United Airlines had their, their flight attendants arranged. Ended up being the safety standard in the industry. To yeah. this day. So the fact that they actually called out the airline and said, hey, good job. Good on them. But also, bad job. You retained a pilot you shouldn't have. <laughs> yeah. I have a story about flight attendants that we'll talk about in the post episode. So if you want to listen to that, make sure to check out Patreon. Hey. Like my, my Segu there. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we know it is Segway. Don't Segway. come at us. I literally have always said Segu, so. It's also a joke from our favorite podcast. It's fine. It's not where I got it from, by the way. But yes, it is. <laughs> Uh, that was United Airlines Flight 227. That one's really easy to remember, so I remembered it. See? <laughs> hey, you, you mix that up a little bit and you get 727. That's true. <laughs> so thank you for everyone who is listening. Thank you to our patrons, as always, for supporting us in whatever way that you do. Thank you. If you would... Oh, we actually have a question from a patron that yes. we are going to answer now. Because they asked us, and we were like, okay. That's actually a really good question. Yeah. And some it of is. you might have the same question and haven't asked, so we are going to answer it. So, our patron, Will, asked, and I, and I like this. I'll read his whole thing, because it's kind of funny, actually. He says, it's one forty in the morning in the UK, so I'm not sure why I'm still awake and thinking about this, but why is pilot experience measured in hours of flying time and not in number of flights? Well, A.K.A. flight cycles. Right. Surely someone who has flown 10 one-hour flights has more experience than someone who has flown one 10-hour flight. Considering plane age is measured in rotations, so cycles, not in hours in the air, why isn't pilot experience measured in the same way? So I like this question, actually, because it's actually, well, I think it's well thought out. <laughs> it's a good question. Um, and there's a little caveat to that, and that is that actually m a lot of airplanes aren't measured in flight cycles. In most general aviation, at least in the United States, most general aviation airplanes are actually measured in hours. So that's kind of where it all started, is these smaller airplanes were measured in hours. It's how their maintenance is tracked. It's how the records are kept on the airplane. It's all kept by the hour record. Yeah, so and for example, whenever they have to do their big maintenance checks, it's the 50-hour check, the 100-hour check. Right. It's harder for bigger airplanes to do that because they fly so many hours in a day right. and a month. And to add up the amount of hours they would need to figure out when that hour is to have their sea check or whatever, it's easier to do it by flight cycles because those airplanes make so many cycles yes, and the even bigger, in a day. And the bigger airplanes, it makes a lot more sense because if they had to go every 100 hours, this plane would be grounded way too often. Yeah. So in the smaller airplanes and the piston airplanes where they have to have oil changes frequently, that's that makes a little more sense. They're not going to be flown as often anyways. So that that's a reasonable amount of expectation for that airplane, whereas the bigger airplanes... They they get maintained constantly, but for major checks on the airplane, they only need to know a certain number of cycles and time. Not not hours of time, but actual years of time. So how how long has it been since the last sea check? Not in flying hours, in actual passage of time. Right. Now, going back to the whole pilot situation... That's a whole different thing. So... It's not necessarily true to say that 10 one-hour flights is more experience than one 10-hour flight. 
because for that one 10 hour flight, you have to do so much more than during a one hour flight. It requires a lot more planning. You'll have to know more complex airspace, more likely. You'll have to know more complex radio communications, unless you're really just spending your time doing circles out in a field in the middle of nowhere. And then in which case, yes, probably you'd gain more experience doing 10 one hour flights. But here's the thing. So when you talk about hours on on pilots, when it gets to the time for the airlines, so they would much rather track by hours at that point, because if they track by cycles, you could have somebody in that cockpit who, okay, I met a 1500 cycle requirement rather than a 1500 hour requirement, and they could have done 20 minute flights every day and gained basically no experience because they could have just been doing circles. Right. And we talked to Brendan about this yesterday because we saw him yesterday. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, if that were the case, I'd have like, I don't know, it was like 100 cycles or 100 hours or something like that. A lot more than what he has now. He'd have, yeah, several hundred cycles by now because of his Because of how he has to train and all that stuff. So it's a lot harder to track these cycles versus hours per se not necessarily because we do track them you have to you're supposed to write how many landings you have in your logbook and those kinds of things but it does kind of matter what those landings are and it's more important to the airlines that you have a certain number of hours because you're more likely in those number of hours to have done these longer flights and have gained a lot more experience than in doing an equivalent number of cycles per se so the hour requirement is kind of key in setting a benchmark. And it's also just a very effective way of getting down to an exact amount of experience. Because in aviation, we measure in tenths of hours right. as well. Versus in in cycles, you could only count the number of landings. And that just isn't necessarily good practice, I would say. Well, and if you go back to the original, like, uh, one 10-hour one flight and 10 one-hour flights, technically both those pilots have the same amount of hours put in, mm-hmm. right? They're the same, 10 and 10. One of them is different than the other, but that doesn't mean that the experience on one is not as valuable as the other. Right. Takeoffs and landings are really important, especially for starting out pilots. Yeah. So those 10 hours are great. But also in an experienced pilot, in a more experienced pilot, having a one 10-hour flight where you're in the cockpit the entire time doing all the stuff you need to do, that's also important. <laughs> yes. So. Well, and here's the other thing. If you get to that 1,500 hours versus 1,500 cycles, you're actually more likely to have spent a lot more time in, in the, the cockpit. Air. Yeah. In the air, period. Because you're more likely to have spent several years getting to that 1,500 hours versus several months, per se, getting to 1,500 cycles. Right. So this is a big, big difference. And so it's important to measure pilots in hours and not cycles but it is important to track maintenance on the bigger airplanes on our the big birds in cycles and not hours because they're really the wear and tear on those airplanes is going to come from cycles versus hours right the way that they're designed on smaller airplanes it's still better to go by hours they could go by cycles but it makes more sense to go by hours well they're not flown as long yeah. Either. Like, yeah. you're not going to fly a 10-hour flight in a, in a Cirrus. Big thing about the small <laughs> airplanes is that they're 
they're only going to do maybe a flight in a day, or flight school airplanes might do three or four in a day, but, I mean, the airlines, you're talking, the airplane's on the ground significantly less time than it's in the air in a 24-hour period. So, so they're they're getting in more cycles per day, for one, but two, they also have smaller capacities for things like um, oil. Yeah. Yeah. They don't need as many major changes. And the thing is, is that they're able to be maintained at these stops along the way. So they really don't require it to have a number of hours. They just say, oh, well, this airplane's had X amount of cycles. It's going to be on the ground at one of our major hubs for an hour, two hours. Let's throw four mechanics on it and get these few things done between the two flights. That's what they do. That's what my job, my dad's job is. That's what his entire job is, is a line maintenance. It's a big, big industry is line maintenance, where they go and work on the airplane between flights rather than taking it out of service. Which is why Al works overnights. Yes. And has screwed up his circadian rhythm. Yeah. Five ways to hell. Yep. Overnights are a good way to do that. More specifically, overnights and doing that and changing back to daytime schedule on your days off. That right. can really, really mess with your body. Whole different discussion. So hopefully, Will, that answered your question. <laughs> it's a really good question, actually. Yeah. And, and I might do a little more research and give you some more specifics on this, too. But that's the best of my knowledge and the things I've talked to people about over the years, having worked in flight schools and such. And so this is that's my understanding of hours versus cycle tracking and why it's so important to do one over the other for different purposes. And just so everyone knows, because he actually told us that he couldn't find our email, uh, our email, because we haven't mentioned it in a while, is info at hardlandingspodcast.com. That is our email. If you can't find it, it's also on our website under the contact page. So www.hardlandingspodcast.com. Yes. Go to contact. There's the email. There's also a question a submission form on our website where you just go there and you can actually just submit your question straight from the website. For when you're up at one forty in the morning. Yes, it sends us an email. <laughs> Not that we didn't get the message right away, because we do. We also get messages if you just send us a message, but it also sends us an email right away if you do that. And same thing for the Aviation Stories of the Month. So yeah. do that too. Remember marches when you felt lucky. Yeah. I think that's everything we needed to discuss. I think that pretty well covers it. Yeah, so thank Thanks. you. Thanks for joining us. Thanks. As always, stay safe, stay healthy, be smart. <laughs> we will catch you guys next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.